Well, it's uh, really a, pri a privilege, a great privilege to be here this morning. And, uh, you know, a number of things that Chris just shared right now uh, really resonated in my heart. This whole worship service, up to, you know, up to this point, has really just resonated about the glory of God and of uh, Jesus Christ, that he is the king of glory and that his glory will be known through all the earth. And as Chris said, it is true, we are, uh, my family, Kathy and my kids, we're planning on being, or we are in the process, I should say, of being sent out from Foothill Bible Church to go uh, start in the uh, work of church planting as missionaries in French-speaking Canada. So what he said is absolutely true. The, the world, you wouldn't expect maybe parts of North America needing missionaries, but uh, it's very clear that they do. Mission agencies see that. We have uh, some Canadians who uh, are in our small group at our church back at, uh, in home and have testified to the reality. They said, oh, we're, we're so glad that you're going because Canada needs missionaries. Now, where we plan to go is the French-speaking part of Canada. So Canada has provinces instead of states, and we would plan to go to the French-speaking province of Quebec. And the interesting thing about that province is that only half a percent of the French Canadians, or the Quebecois, are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Half a percent. Can you imagine that? Now, the other interesting thing about Canada and French-speaking Canada, move that down a little bit here. Is that better? All right, there you go. <laughs> uh, the other interesting thing about French-speaking Canada is that it's an immigrant magnet. So peoples from all over the world are coming to Canada. They're people from French-speaking part of the world. Uh, and in fact, Muslim areas like North Africa, you know, Morocco, you have uh, Algeria. People are coming from those countries and immigrating into Canada, and immigrating into Quebec. And it's really interesting. In fact, if you think about the large cities in Canada, there aren't lots of them, but the large cities there, in fact, uh, Montreal, to give one particular example, there are less than one out of 10 people, or less than one out of 100 people would be believers, but one out of 10 would be Muslim. One out of 10, nearly 10% would claim Islam as their, their faith, and they would follow the God of Islam. So there's a great need among French Canadians, and there's a great need among the immigrants coming there, people who would be otherwise unreachable. Uh, you, it's hard to go into those countries where they're close to the gospel, where coming to faith in Christ might cost you your life, where it's illegal to believe in the Lord Jesus, and where it's illegal to con uh, call people to convert to Christ. And so there's really a great opportunity there, and we're very excited about this opportunity. And we are excited about the opportunity to plant churches for the glory of Jesus Christ there. We want to see French Canadians turn to Christ. And we want to see people who are following Islam, Muslims, turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the work of missions. It is. But it's also the work of the church. 
Think about it. Matthew 28. It's the chem, uh, seminal passage there that uh, Jesus gave us our mission before he ascended into heaven. He said that we were to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All nations. So let's think about missionary work. That's what I would like to talk about this morning. Missions, or mission, if you think about missionary work, you just, for short, call it missions, is we could define as everything involved in carrying out God's plan to rescue sinners from all nations out of destruction through faith in Jesus until he returns. So we could define it broadly as missions as everything involved in carrying out God's plan to rescue sinners from all nations out of destruction through faith in Jesus until he returns. We could put it another way. Missions is the spread of the gospel message and the starting of new churches in places where the local church is not present or not able to do this on their own. So a missionary is one who is sent out from a local church Someone who is recognized as gifted and called by God to the work of missions. Missions is found throughout the whole Bible. God's heart is for the nations. You don't have to turn very far in the Bible to find that. In fact, when you turn to the first book, the book of Genesis, turn to chapter 12, and we see God speaking to Abraham, the forefather of the Jewish people, of the people of Israel to whom God gave the promises. And he says to him, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you turn the opposite direction, to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, you see the same thing. The Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, and he records what he saw. A picture in heaven. He saw a great multitude that no one could number. From every tribe, or excuse me, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. That is missions, and it's throughout the whole Bible. And to prove my point this morning, to show that the Bible truly speaks throughout the whole thing about God's mission to rescue sinners, I picked a passage from a not-as-well-known book, and one that you've probably never heard a sermon for, from before, from the book of Malachi. So, if you have your Bible, or if you uh, want to grab a, a pew, or a, not a pew Bible, I suppose, a Bible from underneath the chair in front of you, <laughs> we got pews at our, uh, at our church, but uh, I actually like chairs better. <laughs> so if you pull out your Bible and you turn to uh, it's the, um, the Bible out in front of you underneath the seat, it would be page 108, or excuse me, 801. Sorry, get those backwards. 801, which is the book of Malachi. So uh, Malachi is at the very end of the Old Testament. So if you turn to Matthew, the very beginning of the New Testament, and just flip a few pages back, it'll be there. The book of Malachi. 
So let me just give you a little bit of background about the book of Malachi, because I know that in my own Bible reading, except for preparing for this morning, uh, it's not a book that I've uh, frequently read. The book of Malachi was written by a prophet named Malachi, hence the name. And it was written to the people of Israel. And it was written during a very low and sad time in that nation's history. You see, what had happened is that the people of Israel, their nation had been conquered by the Babylonians, a world empire that dominated the world. And this happened in 586 B.C., so 500 or almost 600 years before Jesus came into the world, the nation of Israel had been conquered by Babylon. And they took, well, of course, a number of the Jewish people died, right? It was a very terrible situation. They died in battle. But a number of them were brought into exile. They were removed from their nation, from the area of Israel, and taken to Babylon, which is probably where modern-day Iraq is now. And it's 150 years since that's happened that Malachi is writing now. And Malachi, he's writing to the Jewish exiles who have now returned back to Israel. They traveled almost a thousand miles from what would be Iraq to Israel, uh, Babylon to the, the capital city of Jerusalem in Israel. So imagine having to walk from Los Angeles, California, to Seattle, Washington, and you kind of have an idea of what that might have been like, except there were no roads. <laughs> and there were about 60,000 of these Jewish exiles who were back in Jerusalem, and God was starting to do a work back in, amongst his people. He was gathering them back, and he brought people like Nehemiah, and Ezra, that were leaders of the, the people of Israel to help them rebuild, not just physically their walls and their city, but also as a people to rebuild them in their worship of God. And so what had happened at this point is that the temple itself, the center of Jewish worship of the true God, had been rebuilt. Not only had the temple been rebuilt, but they had renewed their covenant with God. You see, the people of Israel were a unique people because they had a promise or a covenant that had been made with God. God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That was the essence of the promise or the covenant that had been made with them. And they had forsaken that. They had been unfaithful. But God had brought them to a point of renewing that vow, that promise to him that God had made. And they had also begun to set up the, the form of worship that God had prescribed for them. You know, we are meeting here in a church building, per se, right? And meeting in chairs and having a kind of form of worship. Well, the people of Israel had their own form of worship. And it had been reinstituted. So there was a lot of good things that had happened. However, when you read the book of Malachi, you see something has gone wrong. Uh, God, their worship of God had become corrupted again and empty. And so the book of Malachi, it's, it's basically a lawsuit that God is 
bringing against his people. He's bringing charges against them. He has six major points of contention with the people. And these contentions are then argued against by the people. So to give you an idea what that would sound like, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 2, God says to them, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So you see there God saying, I, I have loved you. I've committed myself in loving you. And then they're contending, well, how have you done that? You look at chapter 2 and verse 17, you see another example of that. God uh, is bringing this charge against them. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? So you see, this is kind of the pattern of this book. And I am mentioning that because when we get to the passage you want to look at in the book of Malachi, this is a particular accusation that God is bringing to the people. He's saying that they have not honored and feared him as their king. They've kind of been going through the motions. So I'm going to read verses 6 through 11 of chapter 1 in the book of Malachi. And then we're going to really focus in on two verses, verses 10 and 11. So uh, turn with me or uh, turn your eyes to the passage as I read. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say... How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show, you, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This morning, we must embrace the purpose and the practice of missions so that we will honor King Jesus by living as missions-minded people. We must embrace the purpose and practice of missions so that we will honor King Jesus by living as missions-minded people. 
I, I'm very excited that Chris spoke about uh, John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, and that's exactly what I wanted to talk about to start this morning, because the way that we embrace the purpose of missions, the first thing we must do is to embrace true worship. Embracing the purpose of mission is really embracing true worship because that is the purpose of missions. Missions, as uh, John Piper says in that book, he starts it. He opens his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, by saying, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Just like Chris quoted this, this morning here. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship, worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. If you haven't read that book, Let the Nations Be Glad, I would highly recommend doing that. It is a fantastic book, and it will thrill your heart, and it will motivate you toward missions. But what he speaks about is true. If we are to embrace missions, we must embrace the purpose of missions, which is true worship. And we embrace that first as we look at this passage in Malachi in our actions. Because God rejects service with no heart. God rejects service with no heart. Look at verse 10 with me. Malachi is recording God's words to them. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. Think about that. Think about how shocking that is. What if, what if you were to get some message from God and he locked you out of this building because your worship was unacceptable? That's what, that's what God is saying to the people in Israel. He's saying that he wants them to shut the doors of the temple. He would rather that they'd shut the doors of the temple that they'd stop worshiping. Think about all of the work that they put into rebuilding that. Think about all the work that they did in organizing and getting that, that uh, form of worship back up to worship God. And yet God's desire is that they stop. He wishes that there would be just one, just one, just one priest who would have the sense to close the doors and stop offering sacrifices on the altar. Now, in Hebrew, because the Old Testament was mainly written in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew language... This expression of God's desire is a strong and intense desire. The English Standard Version, which you guys are reading from, says, Oh, that there were one among you who had shut the doors. But you could actually translate it this way. Oh, that even one among all of you would shut the doors. And what is it that God wants so badly? To have them shut the doors of the temple to stop their worship of him. Now, what is it that God's bothered with? What is, what is it that he wants from them? It's not as though God was not pleased with the fact that they were meeting in the temple and that they had these rituals of worship. 
In fact, it was God's idea from the very beginning. In the book of Exodus, after God delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt, from their slavery there, he gave Moses these instructions to have the people build a tabernacle, which is basically a mobile version of a temple. And they were to make certain instruments of worship and have a certain kind of ritual of worship that all were the things that God wanted from them. In fact, Exodus 25, 8, he says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God is a holy God. And he couldn't dwell with the people unless there were certain forms of worship that would enable God's holy presence to dwell among them. And that's what that tabernacle provided. When the nation settled in the land of Canaan, when they moved and traveled and finally found a permanent capital city in, in Jerusalem, a temple, a more permanent form of the tabernacle was built. It is the non-mobile version of the tabernacle. So God's spirit, as proof that God accepted that form of worship, filled the temple. We read when Solomon finished that fire came down from heaven. Solomon prayed, he's dedicating the temple. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the burnt offering that was offered. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Okay, so if the temple isn't the problem, then what is? What was the problem? Well, as, you, as we see in this passage, it is because they were offering empty, meaningless, unfavorable sacrifices to God. In fact, there's a kind of play on words. If you read in the English Bible, you can't see it, but in Hebrew, there's a play on words. God is saying that the priests... Well, in verse 9, let me read here. It says, Now entreat the favor of God. That word favor is uh, hinam in Hebrew. Entreat the favor or the hinam of God. But in verse 10, God says that the sacrifices offered to entreat God's favor are offered, as the ESV says, in vain, or we could say unfavorably. So they're saying, Now let us entreat the favor of God. And God's saying that they're offering unfavorable sacrifices, hina, hinanu, hinam, hinanu, there's a play on words, it's the idea of just really emphasizing in a poetic way that these are empty, meaningless things that they're doing. The priests had despised God's name and polluted him by offering blind, lame, and sick sacrifices. Now, the Lord says to them, you have despised, uh, despised my name. And they say, how have we despised your name? How, or how have we, uh, he says, by offering polluted food on my, offer, oh, excuse me, on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? Now, that brings us to a little bit more history of the people of Israel. You see, you know, we're not used to bringing goats and sheep here on a Sunday morning. How many of you, uh, you know, packed up a truck and brought some sheep here this morning? <laughs> Nobody, right? So, uh, that wasn't true for the people of Israel. That was part of their worship. You see, God had prescribed that the people of Israel would offer animal sacrifices in their worship. Because the blood of the innocent animal 
represented the covering of their sin. There, in order to meet with a holy God, you have to have your sins dealt with somehow. And these animal sacrifices were a covering for that. They didn't take away sin, right? If they had taken away sin, then you know those sacrifices would have been done away with. That's what Hebrews says. In fact, the author of the book of Hebrews says that they were a reminder of sin, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So they were to remind the people that their sins needed to be forgiven. And more importantly, they were pointing ahead to the only one who could take away their sins. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it's natural that these sacrifices who are pointing to the blameless, sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ had themselves to be without blemish. In fact, God made that very specific in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 15.21, he said that if the sacrificial animal has any blemish, if it's lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. The priests should have known better. But let's just say they didn't know that passage for some reason. Their actions still said that the Lord's table may be despised because they were offering their worst and least valuable things. Think about it. You know, they're taking their, their lame sheep, their blind sheep, the ones that are sick. Oh, I don't, I don't need that one anymore. Well, let's give that one. We can, we can spare this one. And we'll still do good. We can still keep our good sheep and, you know, that's okay. It's just getting burnt up. You know, no one's eating it or anything like that. You know, it's, it's fine. We'll, we'll just use those. But what an insult. And, and God makes that point very clear. Even if they didn't have that passage from Deuteronomy, he says in verse 8 of Malachi chapter 1, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? You know, imagine if you had somebody over to your house and, you know, you got some, like, really, um, like, uh, discounted, uh, <laughs> you know, old, uh, you know, bread that you're serving, old moldy bread you got from the, you know, day-old rack or whatever, right? And you go and you present that to them. I mean, would you do that? I, I hope, you know, I mean, unless, unless you're in a position where you have to do that, and that's okay, but, but, you know, hey, this is what they were doing. It's not as though they didn't have like good sheep, right? It's not as though they didn't have good offerings to offer. It's that they were offering the lame, the sick, and the blind because they didn't want to spare with what was good. They were given the cheap stuff. And, you know, you know, sometimes we fall prey to moments of weakness. And, you know, we, we do something, we know, I, I shouldn't have done that. You know, that, was, that wasn't really honorable to the people we had over whatever it may be or the person you're interacting with, you know, you know, maybe that's what happened with the priest. Maybe, you know, there's a moment of weakness, and they're thinking, well, uh, I don't know, we really need this good sheep. Well, let's just do it this once. Well, that wasn't the case. You see, in the Hebrew language, it's very clear that this offering was a habit of theirs. They were habitually, as a course of life, it was the norm that they were giving to God 
the things that they didn't count themselves to be valuable or worthy. They were going through the motions with no heart in this act of worship. So let me ask you this question here. Do you think that this mentality ever finds its way into our lives as believers in Jesus Christ? What do you think? You know, if it does, what do you think that would look like? Now, maybe you guys have you know, different ideas coming into your head right now, and, and that's good. And the Spirit of God can use His Word to now uh, bring conviction if there's something that you know that's true about that. But I know, for me, there's a kind of temptation, and I, I trust that maybe this temptation comes to you, to think of the Christian life as like a checklist, right? Just things that you got to do. Right, so, you know, I went to church, check. Uh, I went to small group, check. Or I don't know, you call them growth groups, I think, right? Check. Um, I read my Bible, check. Uh, Oh, I'm doing good at this one. I didn't commit the big sins, like adultery, theft, murder, check, check, check. Well, you see the problem with that kind of way of viewing the Christian life? is that the Pharisees were really good at doing those kinds of things, and Jesus called them brood of vipers. He called them children of the devil. And that's that's not a really good title to have. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I don't want to be called a brood of viper or a a child of the devil. Um, Well, in in reality, they actually were because their lack of worship showed that they didn't know the true God. You know, the do's and don'ts aren't so bad in in and of themselves because obviously, you know, reading your Bible and and being involved in church life, you know, those are good things. We want to be people who are involved in in, in those kinds of things, but they're just not an adequate way of seeing the Christian life. They aren't. Because do's and don'ts don't bring you closer to God. They don't. They will not lead you to worship of the true God, to true worship of the one who made all things, because the actions of true worship must begin with the attitude of true worship. Therefore, we must not only embrace the actions of true worship, but the attitude of true worship, because God rejects the servant with no heart. And we see that in in this passage in Malachi, in, in verse 10. He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. The passage emphasizes that they were not concerned with pleasing God. As a result, God was not pleased with them and not pleased with their offering. And so we read the ESV, it says, I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. But that word accept could very easily just be translated, I will not take pleasure in. There's another kind of poetic play on words. In Hebrew, it's a complementary parallel. So I'm saying one thing, and then I'm complementing the same thing with the same idea, but just bringing it a little further to emphasize the point. So God says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and essentially, I will not be pleased with an offering from your hand. And not only that, 
but it's an emphatic no. It, it's not just uh, you know a, a one-time no kind of thing. It's it could almost be translated, I will never be pleased with an offering from your hand. The people of Israel had a dishonoring attitude toward God. By offering to God their worst, they were saying, if you look to verse 7, that the Lord's table may be despised. That's essentially what they were saying. It's not that they were speaking those words. They were saying those words with their actions, that the service of God can be despised. And we see, again, their attitude in verse 13, the verse, first part of verse 13, he says that the people, are, the priests are saying, what a weariness this is. Like, oh, boy, this is so much work. I, I'm just tired of this. I'm tired. This is a, an annoying thing that I have to do. And they're snorting at it, you know, like, oh, gosh, I've got to do this again? That was their attitude that they were bringing to the worship of the true God. They were saying this thing perhaps to one another, or maybe it was just the thoughts of their heart that God knew. Either way, they were doing their duty in a begrudging way. Now, ladies, I want you to think with me for a moment here. Uh, so especially if you're a married woman in here this morning, uh, just imagine with me. Imagine that uh, your husband does something really special for your birthday, right? Um, he takes the day off of work, and he takes the kids with him all day, he, uh, and, and he gives you a, a pass to go to the spa so you can relax and kind of get some uh, refreshment, and you get your nails done, and and then when you, when you come back from that relaxing time over there, you, you find that the house is cleaned up and the laundry's all put away and folded. And not only that, but there's a beautiful bouquet of roses on a, a nice glass vase on the table. And I'm going to get you guys in trouble here, sorry. <laughs> and not only that, here, I'm laying it on here, sorry guys. Not only that, but he took the initiative to go get a babysitter and to uh, set up, uh, to have a reservation at, at you know, one of your favorite restaurants. And, you know, at this point, you know, you're thinking, oh, this is great. Yeah, your heart's feeling full. You're excited about going out to dinner. You just can't wait to spend time with them. But, you know, as, you, as you're driving there, as you sit down at the restaurant, you, you begin to realize that your husband's acting kind of strange. He's, um, he looks upset. And uh, so you're trying to make conversation with him, but he's just kind of like grunting back short replies to you. And you're thinking, this is kind of weird. And while you're eating dinner, he's sighing and, you know, he's looking at the, you know, the time on the wall. He's looking at his phone. You know, when you finally order dinner and it's served you, he, he just shovels the meal down. I mean, he's just eating it down real quick, and you're kind of, this time you're starting to get a little bit annoyed here. And um, then, on top of that, when he's done, he's saying, you know, he suggests, hey, honey, why don't you get a, get a doggy bag so we can go? 
you're like, what's going on? And uh, then you, you're thinking, well, you know, maybe we can go for a walk. So you ask him if we could go for a walk afterwards, right? You know, and to have a time to talk. And he says, well, you know, only if it's short. So finally, you just had it. And you go up to him and you confront him and say about him being so cold and distant and unkind. And then he angrily blurts back to you and says, hey, look, I took the whole day off of work. I paid for you to go to the spa. I dealt with the kids all day long. I brought you flowers. I did the laundry. I cleaned the house. I took you to a nice restaurant. And you're still not happy. I did my duty. What, you know, what more do you want? Now, now, you ladies get this, right? Right? Doesn't matter what he did. He's just not engaged. Because, look, you don't want your husband's duty. You want him to delight in you. Isn't that right? I'm sure I'm going to hear a few amens, right? <laughs> but, hey, don't worry. I'm going to turn this on you. This is a spiritual jujitsu trick here. <laughs> Because just in the same way you ladies want your husbands to delight in you, God wants us to delight in him. He doesn't just want our duty. He doesn't want us to go through the motions and say, I checked all the boxes, and here you go, God, and the rest is for me. You know, I, I got, you know, it's, it's just uh, I've done my duty and now I'm done. That's my Christian life. Absolutely no. And I hope, hope you, you, you sense that reality, right? You know, and so when I've, I've uh, you know, studied this passage in the, in the past, one of the things I've struggled with is to think like, well, how do you apply this? How do you apply? How do you become uh, someone who offers true worship to God? Because, you know, I could have gone and just said right now, well, let's, let's think about ways that we can give God our best. And certainly, that is a great thing. We ought to give God our best. But something just wasn't sitting in my mind. Something about the language of the New Testament wasn't sitting right with me and fitting with the way I was thinking about this. And I finally come to realize that it's because our best is not good enough. It will never be. There's no way you could offer to God worship that would be acceptable if it's simply you. Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. I mean, they were the most religious people. If they had, I mean, they had more boxes to check off than you could think about, right? And they did them all. But they were not pleasing to God. Isaiah 64.6 says, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We can never approach God on the basis of our own abilities and self. The only thing that makes us in our worship acceptable to God is that it's offered through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who is acceptable to God because he's the only one without sin. And so if we are to offer true worship that's acceptable to God, it has to be through that channel, through faith in him. You know, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 says that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He is the way to worship God in spirit and in truth. 
What pleases God, what is acceptable to him, is our faith in him expressed through our delight and trust of him, not mere duty. Think about it. If you delight in someone, duty comes with it. If you delight in God, obedience will come with it because if you delight in someone, you want to please him. Your heart is there. But think about it the other way. Does delight ever come from duty? I mean, very rarely, maybe. But if you're saying, I'm doing my duty, I'm doing my duty, I, I know that doesn't bring about joy and delight, right? It's got to be the right way. Delight leads to duty. So, what does this look like practically? I, I think really, you know, this is a challenge. It's living the spirit-filled life, right? It's saying, not I will try harder tomorrow. It's saying, I can't do it on my own. I need Christ. And that will affect how you pray. Prayer won't become an event that happens in the morning or at certain times of the day. Prayer will become your heart's cry to God when in the moment you're tempted to sin, you say, God, please help me to not sin now. Please help me to delight in you by doing what you want from me. And that's where true worship comes from. And I pray that God would help us all this week to do that. And this is just the same thing that the Old Testament talked about. And it's not new in the New Testament. Uh, God's desire for us has been the same in the Old and the New Testament. Read Psalm 50, verses 8 through 15. He says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Hey, they're doing the rituals. Or your burnt, your burnt offerings are continually before me. All right, you're doing all the religious stuff. I will not accept the bull from your house or goats from your fold, for every beast of the forest is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? And here's what it comes down to. This is what he wants. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Right? That's the spirit-filled life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, thankfulness, and self-control. Right? When we delight in God, then we offer to God that sacrifice of thanksgiving. He says, perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's it, right? Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That is the heart of missions because we need to offer true worship by calling upon God in our moment-by-moment -moment day of trouble, but the world that doesn't know Christ, that is an alienated from God, needs to call upon them, Him in their day of trouble because they, are, they don't know God. Call upon Him for salvation. And we call upon Him because we are saved. Those of you who have trusted Christ, we call upon Him for day-to-day -day deliverance from our temptations that we might walk in a manner worthy of him. So we must embrace the purpose of missions, which is true worship, and the practice of missions, which is church planting. Embrace the practice of mission, which is church planting. And that must happen globally. Globally. Verse 11 of Malachi chapter 1. He says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name. See, God has made a commitment 
to glorify his name. My name will be great. It's not an expression of mere desire or that's what he's hoping is going to happen, but it's a fixed purpose from God. And the reason why he's displeased with the people of Israel at this point in history is because of their subpar worship, because he is committed to the glorification of his own name. God's name will be glorified. It will be glorified from the rising of the sun to its setting. That's not a, uh, from the morning to the evening, but from everywhere the sun touches, God's name will be glorified. There's not one place on this earth where the glory of God will not be known. Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, he says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is not one person who will not glorify God in this way. This will be true for the unbelievers and for believers especially. There is not one tribe or group of people who will not have representatives who believe in the gospel and glorify God by trusting in Christ. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and verse 9, we read, Worthy are you to take the scrolls and open its seals, for you are slain, and by your blood you ransom people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, God's name will be great. You know, when, when we are young, we're full of zeal for life. We wish we had some of that now. <laughs> we run headlong into life and to our pursuits. We feel optimistic about our hopes, about our dreams and desires. And we, we, we believe that our hopes will fulfill us and won't disappoint us. But I'm sure all of you would agree with me that um, life is full of disappointments. Many of them. We strike out at a critical point in the game. We play the wrong note on a piano solo. The girl you asked out on a date says no. The guy you asked, uh, the guy you like says no, doesn't even know you exist. You've been working hard at your job for years and then someone else gets promoted who you think doesn't deserve it. Your favorite sports teams fail to make the playoffs year after year or they get to the World Series and they miss by five runs. Sorry, Dodger fans. Got to go back to the 80s. You know, life is... And, you know, actually worse here, I mean, we can deal with sports teams, but family relationships, you know, the sad thing is those things fall apart too, right? I mean, life is full of disappointments. Life is not what you hoped or imagined it would be, and so we kind of learn to adjust, you know? You shift your hopes from one pursuit to another, and then when you realize kind of that doesn't work, then well, maybe you think, well, like, you know, hey, in finances, you diversify your portfolio, so maybe I'll... You know, I'll put a little bit of hope in this, and a little bit of hope in that, a little bit of hope in this, and, you know, that'll be safe. It'll, it'll keep me happy. You know, if I have one little dis disappointment, it won't be devastating, right? Or, let me suggest something else. Maybe, just maybe, you need a certain hope. An unfailing hope. One that comes with a guarantee. 
Not these money-back guarantees, you don't like it, send it back. One that cannot fail, that kind of guarantee. One that sounds like this. For from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, my name will be great among the nations. Or like this. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is a hope you can put all your eggs in. That's a hope you can invest all of your hope in because God himself will accomplish it. If you want a certain expectation you can invest all your hope in, then become a missions-minded person by embracing the practice of missions, which is church planting in every corner of the earth, because this is now the means in which God is making his name great among the nations by seeing people come to faith and churches planted all over the world. And do that as a church. Join, join the missions committee. And care for and send and support missionaries and church planters and share in that work of the gospel with them. Be ambassadors for Christ at your job, in your neighborhood. Make the gospel know that's a hope that will not fail. Finally, we need biblical church plants. Not just global, but biblical church plants. So, the last part of verse 11, we read that in every place, incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering. In the Old Testament, that word offering is referring to kind of sacrifices generally. Sacrifices took many different shapes and forms. There were different kinds that were prescribed for different reasons. This is just a general reference to sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, those sacrifices looked forward to Jesus and his death on the cross and his atonement, his forgiveness, his forgiving our sins through his death and resurrection. In the New Testament, in the church age, in the time that we live, we take communion, right? The bread and the cup, they remind us and they look back to the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, his thousand-year rule on the earth, then these sacrifices will finally come to their fulfillment. These Old Testament sacrifices will actually have fulfill their true meaning and purpose to look to Jesus, the Messiah, who was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. They will be offered again because sin will be so significantly restrained, people will need a reminder of their need for forgiveness. And that will point them to look forward and look to Jesus in faith and trust him. In the age to come, when the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year rule of Jesus on the earth is over, and God now has completely removed sin, so there's no more sin, then sacrifices will be done. There will be no more. Because... There will be no sin and no death. But this passage in Malachi is looking forward to that thousand-year rule period of time where these sacrifices will be offered. And further, he says the incense will be offered. It's uh, clear that in the Hebrew that God is the one who is moving in people's hearts to do this action, to offer true worship to God. And most importantly, these will be pure offerings. The word is tahor. It can speak of 
physical, chemical, ceremonial, or moral purity. And it's contrasting with the blind, lame, and sick animals that these priests have been offering. The Lord is looking for that kind of worship, and it will happen. He is seeking acceptable worship. So we must be in the, the process of planting biblical churches who offer true, acceptable worship to God. Now, if you are familiar with politics these days, you know, you probably hear a lot of uh, information about polls that are taken and people's opinions about one particular issue or another. And how many of you have heard a poll in the last month about Americans' opinions of things? Okay. Now, if you listen to the, the news, you, you hear that often enough. Well, the implication is usually that if you hear that a majority of Americans feel a certain way about a particular issue, that therefore it must be right, and that must be the right thing to do. Well, you see, that's the way politics works, but God is not a politician. The Lord is not a politician seeking to pander votes for himself, right? He's not just interested in filling arenas full of people to listen to motivational speaking. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want people to just you know, put a bumper sticker on their car that they, you know, somehow, in some way, uh, claim God to themselves. He wants pure worship, true worship, so there must be biblical church plants that we're involved in. Because public opinion means absolutely nothing to Jesus. Absolutely nothing to him. He is seeking, or the Father is seeking, such people who will worship in spirit and truth. So the temptation, I think, for us is to bend or to alter the gospel message, to make it watered down some way so that it's more palatable to people, to, you know, maybe there's this idea that you can socialize people to the gospel, you just, if you're just friendly enough and you, you know, don't share, um, you know, really the full truth with them, that, you know, somehow that will eventually help them become believers. Well, you know, that's exactly how you immunize people to diseases. Is you get a vaccine, it has a small dose of that disease, and your body begins to fight it off because it's just enough to get you familiar with it so it's, you hear it, but then it doesn't really penetrate your heart, right? And that, that's what we don't want to do with the gospel, and that's what you don't want to do at church plant. You don't want people who are going to do that, and you don't want to invest in people who are going to teach and preach that way. So just to end, brothers and sisters, it is such a joy to be here this morning and to see you all and just to see a thriving church here. Uh, and, and I just want you to think here. The reason that we're here this morning is because there were some missions-minded people meeting in Upland, California, who had it in their heart to start a church out here. And the reason why people were meeting at 1330 West 15th Street in Upland is because there were missions-minded people who wanted to start a church there to worship the true God. And I will just ask you and challenge you to this question. Will you embrace this vision as well? Will you set your hope fully on the purpose of God to glorify his name from the rising of its sun to its setting? Will you commit to being a missions-minded church to offer true worship by church and to church plant. If you do, if you want to do this, it's going to take a strong 
and settled commitment over years. But if you do it, God will work wonders. And one day, you will be visiting a church in the next cities down, or maybe in another state, or maybe in another country. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Uh, what a joy to be here. Pray that you'd use your word to motivate us to love the gospel and to plant churches, biblical churches globally, and to worship you in spirit and truth. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.